This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 54, the death of Jesus. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemo sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Jesus's resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The uh, four gospel writers preserve, keep a number of sayings from the lips of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. If you were to add them up from Matthew, from Mark, Luke and John, there'd be seven of them. The one I want us to focus in on is in verse 46 of our passage. It's uh, the one that's preserved for us in Aramaic. That was the language, the common language of Palestine in history when Jesus walked the earth. It's translated for us in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's easily the most confusing of the phrases, the statements that we have recorded from the lips of Jesus on the cross. It's the most uh, upsetting and the most perplexing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that phrase mean? Why is Jesus asking that question and what's the answer posed by that question? That's what I want us to think about. What was Jesus really suffering at that point? It's as if God has turned his back on him. It's as if God has failed him at this point in his life. And I want us to spend some time before we come around the communion table thinking about what that statement means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it describes the, the infinity of the suffering of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. That's the first thing I want us to think about. The, the infinity, that's a word just to describe the, the weight and the size and the magnitude and the duration of the suffering that Jesus feels as he hangs on the cross. Let's think about that firstly, the infinity of his suffering. Up until now, Jesus has experienced three different types of suffering. Jesus, as you can see on the screen, he's experienced physical suffering as he's had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He's been beaten and bloodied, physical suffering. He's had the emotional suffering of feeling, of sensing, of, of knowing that God has turned his back upon him. And emotionally that people have let him down. His friends have turned their backs on him as well. And he's also been betrayed by Judas, one of his inner circle. 
But notice what Jesus does not say on the cross. He does not say, my hands. He doesn't shout, my feet. He doesn't shout, my brow, as the thorns are impressing upon him with blood down his face. He doesn't say any of that. Notice what causes Jesus in verse 46 to cry out in a loud voice. Literally, it means shout, or you could translate it, scream. Jesus has felt physical, emotional suffering. He has been betrayed, and yet none of those things cause him to react the way he does in verse 46. Jesus is calling out in a loud voice, and that means that something new is happening. Something different is happening at this point as Jesus hangs on the cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And what's happening, verse 46, is... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father is forsaking Jesus, his son. And so Jesus has now not experienced physical, emotional or psychological suffering. Jesus now is experiencing spiritual suffering. Look at verse 45. If you've got your Bible open, Matthew chapter 27 Verse 45, Jesus is experiencing real spiritual suffering from the hands of his father. Verse 45 says this is what's happening in the land at that time. From the sixth to the ninth hour, there was utter darkness. Do you see that? This is not a solar eclipse. This is a spiritual reality made manifest in a physical reality that darkness is covering the whole land. It can also be translated as the whole earth. Now, in the Christian tradition, this means that Jesus, for a limited period of time, is experiencing spiritual suffering, the likes of which no one will ever know to the same degree And that God the Father sends Jesus, his son, into hell for our sake. Yes, Jesus goes to hell. In the Bible, in the New Testament especially, the the imagery that is used to describe hell the most is not fire and brimstone, but it's darkness. Someone being cast out into literal outer darkness or deep darkness. Because God is light, to be banished from his presence is to be thrown, to be cast away from his goodness and his beauty and his glory and to experience darkness and separation. To be banished away from God the Father. And that's what Jesus is experiencing to a degree that no one will ever know or experience. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books talking about hell, he puts it this way. He says, Ultimately, people who want to turn their back on Jesus, one day God will give them what they want and he will cast them away from his goodness, away from his glory, away from his grace, and they would experience what they truly want. They will be banished away from his kindness and his mercy, and they will experience the absence of his glory and kindness and grace. They will experience hell. That's what C.S. Lewis says. And when that happens, When you know nothing of the light of the goodness and glory of God, when you know only darkness and coldness, like the the sun being switched off for three hours in the middle of the day, it is like the sun going out. And that means your, your humanity freezes. 
says C.S. Lewis. Your, your humanity freezes. So when you're cast out into the outer darkness, you don't and you can't experience love anymore. You can't experience joy anymore. You can't know truth anymore. Your, your, your body is breaking down, you could say, because you need light to survive. You need light to flourish and thrive. And now God has given you what you want. You don't want him to be part of your life. And so God withdraws all of his goodness and blessing and you feel just his judgment and his righteous wrath. That's what happened to Jesus. As he's hanging on the cross for the sins of the world, God the Father places his wrath upon Jesus, his son, as he carries our sin upon his shoulders. And at that point, Jesus experienced hell. He didn't feel that God was there for him anymore. He didn't feel God's love that he's enjoyed throughout all eternity for him for that time. It wasn't just a cold shoulder. God the Father forsook Jesus, his son, for the sins of the world as they were carried upon his shoulders. Jesus didn't feel the love of his father. Jesus sensed, I expect, that God would never come back to him. He felt absolutely deserted from the loving embrace of his father. And he was plunged into outer darkness and into the gates of hell, banished from God's glory, not sensing his delight or his smile or the presence of his glory and brightness. He was banished from the presence of his enduring love. And he did that for you and for me. That's what happened on the cross in these hours of darkness. Jesus Christ taking the punishment for our sin upon himself, experiencing the wrath of God and complete abandonment, the likes of which no one will ever know. That's what those words mean. Translated for us from Aramaic, the, the language of Palestine, verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? It's the, the infinity of the suffering of Jesus in our place for our sakes once and for all. But there's more. There's more. Not just the, the quantity, not just the amount, not just the duration of the suffering of Jesus, the infinity of it. It's also the intimacy the intimacy of his suffering. That's a strange way for me to put it, but I get that from uh, the same phrase in verse 46. Look at how Jesus phrases what he says to his father as he hangs on the cross. My God, my God, verse 46, once again. Jesus is the only one who's ever prayed, my God. He's the only one who has that right to say, my God, at this point. My is the the terminology, it's a language of intimacy. There's only a very small number of people that I can say my to. I can say my wife, Joe, my sons, my daughters, my mum, my brother. It's a very polite way of saying intimacy and closeness and belonging. And Jesus twice says this to his father from the cross, clinging to the covenant, clinging to the intimacy that he has with his father since and even before the world was made. It's the language of intimacy. It's also the language of, of covenant. From the beginning of the Bible, there is a promise 
from the book of Exodus, it begins to get fleshed out that God at Sinai says the words of covenant to his people. And we see it especially in the book of Jeremiah saying, I will be your God. You will be my people. It's the language of choice and intimacy and belonging and covenant. So Jesus is clinging to the cross nailed to the cross and rather he's clinging to the covenant promise he's saying my god my god he's sensing and experiencing spiritual forsakenness and yet he's still clinging on to the promise of the covenant these are my people that i want to hold on to god even though you've forsaken me these are my people that i want to win for you so that much would be made of your name and your glory would be known and enjoyed to the ends of the earth so although i feel and are experiencing your you turning the back your back on me i'm holding on to the covenant promise that you've made to win a people for yourself and this is fleshed out in a very strange place in the bible i was thinking about this this week when why does Jesus speak in this way when he's talking about the resurrection in John chapter 20 that you can see on your screen? Why does Jesus not say our? Look at John 20. This is speaking about the resurrection. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected that we're thinking about on Sunday. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus says, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And why doesn't Jesus just say our God? I'm ascending to our God and my father. Why does Jesus choose to say my father and your God? I think because in that precious sentence from John 20, verse 17 and other passages in the Gospels as well, Jesus wants us to understand that as close as we can be to God, the father through the indwelling relationship that the Holy Spirit provides for us through Jesus the Son as much as we can cry Abba Father that we're sons and daughters of God there is a closeness that Jesus has in the Godhead that we will never fully enjoy Jesus says I have a relationship with my father that is so unique that is so precious that is so close we've dwelt together throughout all eternity Father Son and Holy Spirit it means that he experienced a hell like no one else will ever experience. The closeness of the bond is rendered whilst Jesus hangs on the cross for our sins. I mean, some of us don't need to imagine this, but imagine, imagine you get back to the shops on the 12th of April when they're opened up. You go back shopping and, and, and straight away you, you have a bit of a set too with someone in authority at a shop or perhaps with one of your children's uh, headmasters or teachers. There's someone in authority and you have a right set to with them so much so that they send you out and they say, I never want to see you again. Leave this school, leave this shop, leave this parking lot. I never want to see you again. There's something like the reality of personal brokenness that is worse than physicality. There's something when you have a, a friendship, a close bond or a relationship with someone in authority that you know really well, that when that's ripped apart, when that's rendered, it's even more painful than perhaps physical suffering, that that broken friendship 
that relationship with a parent or someone with an authority or even a shopkeeper, that when you have that argument with them, you, you kind of shuffle by next time you go past the shop or the parking lot or the school gates. You, you hope they are not there so you don't catch their eye. It's terrible to have a loving relationship broken. But think about the person who loves you the best in this world or the person that you love the best. And imagine that that relationship is ripped apart. It's so painful. It can feel like you'll never get back to normal. Imagine if that's a parent. Imagine if that's your spouse. Imagine if it's a child who says, I never, ever want to see you again. Get out of my life. Now imagine what Jesus went through when his father turned his back upon him, when he forsook him for the sins of the world, the son who'd been in the bosom of the father throughout all eternity, that was rendered for you and for me. The closeness of every loving relationship that we know and we enjoy in this world, it's just like a drop in the Atlantic Ocean in comparison with the loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all eternity that the Trinity ever has enjoyed. And, and Jesus knows the reality of that relationship being broken and rendered as darkness descended upon the whole earth. That's the words that Jesus uses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's clinging to his father. He's clinging to the promises of God made in the covenant to win a people. And yet he's struggling to process everything that he is experiencing as he hangs on the cross for the sins of the world. It's the infinity and the intimacy of the sufferings of Jesus. But also, thirdly, we see we see the secret of his power. We see the secret of the power of Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean, have you ever thought the video was so helpful that Dave shared with the children? Have you ever thought, why did Jesus not give up? Why did not Jesus, why did he not throw in the towel? Why did he not, why did he not give up? From my understanding, it'd be very easy to give up. But notice Jesus did not give in. He did not give up. He did not turn his back. He willingly gave up his spirit, the Bible says, verse 50. But Jesus never gave in and he never turned his back. And he never gave up in spite of all that he was facing. How did he do it? I mean, what was the secret? In the Old Testament, there's a, a story of the, in the book of Jonah. Jonah and the big fish. There's a place in Jonah chapter 2. When he's underwater, the waves are about his head and he's got seaweed round his neck. And he says to God from the belly of the big fish, you, you hurled me into the deep. The waves have gone over me, yet I will turn towards your holy temple. Now, that's a lot of faith for Jonah to say that. He's in the belly of a big fish. He's at the bottom of the sea. And yet he's still so sure the greatness of God's grace that he says, I will turn towards your temple. Think of Esther. Think of Queen Esther. She says in Esther 4, with great courage, this great woman of conviction and beauty and courage, most of all, she stands before the king of that time, risking her own neck. And she was just talking about physical death. And she says, if I perish, I perish. 
We've got Jonah with the courage at the depth of the sea. We've got Queen Esther with great courage before a king who had authority to take the head from her shoulders. And yet Jesus says these words from the cross, and it's even greater than Jonah. It's even greater than physical death that Esther was willing to stand in the face of. And the courage that Jesus has is something even greater than Jonah and Esther. And the question is, what's Jesus's secret? How does he have the power to not turn his back on us, to not let go of us, to not not go through with the cross? And you could say, well, that's easy because Jesus was God. Yes, he was, but he was also human. He was limited to our humanity, 100% human, 100% divine. Jesus came to the earth to live with all the limitations that you and I have. He only had the resources we had. He was fully human, but he depended on God for all that he did, for every miracle, for all his strength, for everything that he did and said. He was reliant on his father. He was indwelt by the power and person of the Holy Spirit fully human and fully God. So if he depended on God for everything, how did Jesus not let go of us? How did he not come down from the cross? How did he not willingly give in? It's an open secret from those words, the words of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, Jesus is meditating on scripture. He's meditating on the Bible and he's quoting word for word Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22, verse one. Not only that, by the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, he says he has done it. Another way you can translate that is to say it has finished. Jesus is up on the cross realizing that he's been forsaken by his father he's meditating on the bible he's clinging to the word of god when he thought all was lost he held on to a passage from the bible and he allowed the bible to contradict his feelings his senses his emotions this is the whole open secret of how jesus did not let go of us how he did not come down from the cross because he allowed the Bible to trump his feelings, his emotions and his senses. When all seemed lost, he trusted God as he clung to the promise of God's word. Let's look at Psalm 22. It's on the screen now. It says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. And I am not silent. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments or cast lots for my clothing. Now, the people that have read Psalm 22, the people that have commented on that are saying, this doesn't make sense. This is talking about execution. And David, who wrote Psalm 22, he didn't die. So who's it talking about? Talking about a person that's having their life taken away from them. This is not someone who's struggling with something. This is someone who is killed. 
This is someone who is executed. Note on the screen now how the psalm ends. How does the psalm end? Looking at verse 24. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it, or it is finished. Psalm 22 is describing only one person in human history who has died in this way. 800 years before Jesus was hung on a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem, these words were written. And the authority of the Holy Spirit, David wrote, looking forward to his Savior and his Lord, King Jesus. You may not be a Christian this morning, but it's without doubt that the death of Jesus has revolutionized the world. Those words from verse 24 and verse 13, verse 31 about this executed one changing history, people knowing his name from generation to generation, that has happened. Christianity has changed the world. You can't deny that fact. And many modern historians such as Tom Holland are beginning to recognize that in his book called Dominion. Across the world, millions of people have become Christians as they've seen the long-suffering one, Jesus Christ, dying for the sins of the world, not just generally, but their sins. And Jesus Christ held on to that psalm as he was hanging on the cross. He was meditating on that psalm to give him strength when it appeared to his senses and his emotions that his father had deserted him. He held fast to that promise, knowing that God would honor his word. That's the secret to his power. And I just want us to close with these three or four thoughts. What does this teach us? The secret of God's power, Jesus' power, is meditating on the word of God. If you're wondering about Christianity this morning, you can't have Christ without the Bible. You can't believe in Jesus without believing in the Bible. If you want a real personal relationship with the God of the Bible, who is the real and only God in the whole world, he must be able to, he must be able to contradict you. You must be able to contradict your feeling and your senses and your values and your worldview. If God cannot do that, if the God of the Bible is not allowed to do that, then he's not the God of the Bible. He's the God of your own making. A real personal relationship with the God of the Bible that Jesus Christ had means he must be able to contradict your feelings. Think about how Jesus was feeling and yet he didn't let and bow to his feelings or his emotions. He trusted God. He clinged fast to the covenant promise of God, knowing that God would honor his word. Christian friends, think about this. If Jesus Christ was devoted to his study of the Bible, fully God, fully human, but he meditated on the Bible. When terrible things happen to us, isn't it true that the true us comes out? And here is Jesus hanging on a cross, suffering for the sins of the world, your sins, my sins. 
And what was most true of him came out. He's meditating on the Bible. He was praying the Bible throughout his life. If that's true of him, surely we mustn't snack on the Bible. Surely we can't live sustained by our own strength. We need to time and again make a priority of listening to the voice of God through the Bible. Not just when things are bad, but when things are easier as well. Do you make it a priority to meditate on the truth of the Bible? Do you saturate saturate yourself in it? Do you steep yourself? Do you meditate on the truth of the Bible? Do you pray it in? Do you enjoy hearing God's voice through his word? Do you feel forsaken this morning? Do you feel abandoned by God this morning? If that's you this morning, if heaven feels silent, then remind yourself of this truth. If Jesus Christ did not let go of you as he hung on the cross, then as he was forsaken by his father, as he felt the reality of the wrath of God for your sin and my sin, as he went into hell for our sake, but he did not forsake you then, why should Jesus Christ forsake you now? He won't. He'll never let go. You're his people of the covenant. He will never turn his back on you. In spite of all the father threw at him, Jesus did not turn his back on you. He was true to you. He hasn't forsaken you then and he won't forsake you now. Do you see the answer as we close to this question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answers are all there in Matthew chapter 27. Why was God forsaken? Look at verse 51. Jesus Christ was forsaken so that there was now the reality of an open temple. The veil is ripped in two so that you and I can now go right into his presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken, verse 52, so that tombs can be opened. There's going to be the reality that we remember on Easter Sunday of the physical death of Jesus and the physical resurrection of Jesus. There's going to be a resurrection. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for hearts to be open? Look at verse 54. Even the centurion who was beating Jesus, even a Roman, a Gentile, even an oppressor of Jesus, he saw it. Surely this is the son of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for empty temple? for open tombs and for an open heart. Here's the question for you to wrestle with this morning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken Jesus? And here's the answer. God forsook his son for me and for you. If you're a Christian, can you say that this morning? Why was Jesus forsaken? The answer is for me and for you.